0: And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, a podcast that shines a light in dark places. And today we'll be shining that light on the 2018 murder of Nicole Cartwright from Australia. Her body was sadly recovered two days after her 32nd birthday.
1: That's so sad. This is such a heartbreaking case. I hate that for her that that happened so close to her
0: birthday. Yeah, it's it's awful. The research into this just made me so sad because she was so young. It was so close to her birthday. Horrifying for her family. It's just a sad case.
1: It really is. And I want to give our listeners a little bit of info about who Nicole was before this happened to her. She was described as having a pretty wide circle of friends, and they really adored her style She had a very distinct style, very distinct fashion sense. She liked to wear really like bright colors. And I would call her kind of like an alternative or maybe even a goth chick. She really looked like she could stand out in a crowd. And she wasn't all just dark clothing, though. Sometimes she would wear really cutesy things. And there's some photographs of her in a pink animal beanie. I'm trying to think of what kind of goth I would call her. Maybe like a pastel goth would be an appropriate term for what she looked like, what her fashion sense was like. She was vibrant and had a fun personality.
0: I could see that. I was looking at some pictures of her and I think that that nails it. I mean, she was a really cute girl, really, really did have that fun type of personality. You could tell just by the way she dressed.
1: I feel like her friends would have comfortably described her as the life of the party because she was so fun and cute. But People did notice that things were changing a bit in the weeks leading up to her death. Through her social media accounts, people could see that she was kind of starting to spiral into that darker side of her personality which seems like it was always there before, but it was just like there was this distinct shift towards dark things. She was starting to dip her toe into the world of fetish dating apps. And because we're here today on our podcast, obviously death fetish forums and websites as well. So her friend's know about this because of the posts that she was making. And they just described that the things that she was posting about had just become really, really dark and dark and dark and continued to be darker in the days and
0: weeks prior to her death. I think that's so sad. I'm also not surprised, though. I can see how you could spiral into a really dark place just from visiting those death fetish websites and probably just the things you might be reading in the darker fetish dating app. Some of that stuff can get really heavy. So that kind of spiral makes sense to me.
1: It does to me too. And I feel connected to Nicole because I have a similar fashion sense and I have similar interests. And so like I know what it's like to enjoy being part of an alternative subculture or a gothic subculture. And I agree, like people in my style community, they're open-minded. And so there's a fair bit of consuming dark movies, dark literature. I'm sure she started going on these sites I guess just with maybe a morbid fascination or a desire to have some sex encounters that were a little bit more kinky than what she had been experiencing with typical people. But as we know, once you get into those websites and forums, there's this process of being desensitized and things can really escalate there. And then just the people that are in those websites, you can't really vouch for any of them to be safe people to connect with because you can see they're in there for hours a day and they're into some really extreme and dangerous things. And I want to clarify, too, that I'm not talking about everybody who has a sexual kink. I'm talking about people who are in death fetish forums and talking about death fetish fantasies and watching simulated snuff films.
0: Well, thanks for clarifying. You don't do that, and then we become the subject of a tweet by some of the fetishers. So thank you for clarifying that. But I I agree. I think that Nicole just had a curiosity, and I think... The vibrance that she showed and the love that she had for her family and her friends and just the horrific nature of what happened really fueled the determination of law enforcement to find her killer even more so. I think they know that she'd kind of gotten sucked into something that maybe wouldn't have normally been her life. And so they were just determined to find her killer. They launched a manhunt that lasted two years and it led them down some very dark paths. As part of that investigation, authorities actually launched a task force that was dedicated to tracking down the interactions that Nicole had had with men through dating apps and fetish websites. That's how horrific this was. And that's how almost immediately they knew that she had encountered someone that took advantage of her and then murdered her. But I I thought it was really interesting that they put together a task force that was dedicated to that. I want to get to know the people in that task force. I mean, that could be amazing information for us on this podcast because they delved into the world of death fetish dating apps, fetish dating apps, and death fetish websites. So I think that's incredibly fascinating.
1: Yeah, they probably had no idea that that's where this case would take them in the beginning. But it's crazy when you look at a murder classically, you're always going to turn to those people that are very close to the victim. But in a case like this, it can be really A wide span of people because these people could be anywhere and they're not necessarily easy to track down when they're just hiding behind a screen
0: name on a fetish website. During their investigation, they discover that Nicole had met a 51-year-old man through one of these dating sites. Mm. So he was a lot older. She was barely 32. And I think that age difference is a little bit scary to me, especially in a death fetish setting. I don't know. A lot of it made me think about the experience that you had with Carl Coleman and who Carl Coleman is now, Alicia, because he's the same age. He's 52. And so his face kept flashing in my mind as a death fetish predator. I mean, I'll
1: be honest. I was was just going to say a 20 year difference. Like, can you even imagine? I mean, I know we're both married, but if you are single right now, can you imagine a man that was 20 years younger than you? I don't know. I just feel like that's such a huge age gap, especially the younger you go, the more of a difference there is there. And so somebody who's in their 50s is going to have a pretty different experience than somebody who's just entering their 30s.
0: I Completely agree. So I think that adds to the horrificness of all this. So this 51-year-old man, they hunt him down. His name is Dennis Pietrobon. And according to police, Dennis, I'm going to call him old Denny because you know I have to name all these fetishers. Denny and Nicole had agreed to meet up for what was considered to be consensual yet highly risky sexual conduct because they met up to consume methamphetamine. I was sad about that. just. Drugs, especially meth, fueling anybody's life, let alone a sexual experience, makes it more aggressive. Death Fetish Denny was into meth? Who would have thought? Death Fetish Denny. Exactly. Yeah, now I'm convinced that his screen name was Death Fetish Denny. I don't know. You've got that stuck in my head now.
1: Oh, Denny. Dennis Denny. I don't like that name. Me neither.
0: So in this investigation, police were able to determine that Nicole took an Uber to Dennis. Went to his home in the early hours of October 1st, 2018, and together they engaged in what is known as a pump and play session. Are you familiar with that, Alicia?
1: No, that's uh, not something that I had ever heard of before we researched this case.
0: Me either. And I actually, my full time job outside of the wonderful world of podcasting is I'm a sober living director. And so I'm very well versed in drugs and all the culture around it. And I had never heard of a pump and play session but basically that's just very drug-fueled sex that can last for hours and it's something that's very popular.
1: Does that mean that they pump themselves with drugs and then they have a lot of sex? Is that is that maybe?
0: Essentially by and large the use of methamphetamines anyway prolongs a sexual act sometimes for hours and hours and so that's one of the draws to using methamphetamines. So there's a whole subculture of people that go on sites to meet up with people for these pump and play sessions. It's a really dangerous and scary thing. Wow,
1: I feel oddly naive to this world, but that makes sense. So you can imagine what kind of experience they both decided to have there. They were just going to go for it. They both were desiring for this to be a really rough and intense sexual session. They both had consented to that. But after the session, Dennis became extremely violent with Nicole for unknown reasons. He had struck Nicole on the left side of her face and he did go on to murder her brutally and he stuffed her body in the trunk of his mercedes afterwards and he did leave her there for two whole days awful terrible and
0: i i wanted to add here too methamphetamines often makes people very violent and sometimes for no reason or it makes them paranoid and so you put all that together and him not knowing nicole very well maybe the session was too rough maybe something happened And she smarted off to him. We will never know. But I can see how that combination could very easily turn deadly. And so this should be like a cautionary tale to people to stay away from any kind of pump and play session. Stay away from meth. You just never know because that particular drug turns people into a monster.
1: I don't trust a death fetish predator when they're sober. So having some sort of impaired... Decision making as a result of being under the influence of something, that's really scary.
0: I agree. It's frightening.
1: Then they see some CCTV footage. Looks like Dennis's car, his Mercedes, going to
0: the Buffalo Creek Reserve in Hunter's Hill. They find Nicole's body. It's bruised. She's battered. It's horrific. She is wrapped in a bed sheet and she's found on Sydney's lower north shore at the Buffalo Creek Reserve. And she was found there in the early hours of October 3rd, 2018. So
1: the police were able to determine that there was a link between Dennis, Nicole, and the crime scene. And that crime scene was very brutal. Nicole's body was found with her hands tightly bound up. And she had sustained multiple very severe head injuries. When her body was discovered she was pretty decomposed it took almost a week to make a positive identification that's
0: significant if it takes a week to make an identification i mean just based on how brutally she was beaten the communication that i've had with some people on this case tell me that like the skull was just almost caved in i want the listener to understand this was a horrific horrific murder it typically does not take a week to be able to identify somebody. And that just makes me incredibly sad for Nicole's family.
1: Yeah, especially with her body not having been there a super long time. It's not like she was out in the woods for months. That's understandable if it takes a while to identify. Yeah. When I hear that, I go straight back to the end of their bedroom session and then it's really hard to imagine. That's the point where a lot of the death fetish predators their argument is like, "Well, this person, they signed up for this. They were willing. It was consensual." And it's just like Just because you have an interest in BDSM or the kink world doesn't mean that you were having a consensual experience. Nobody is going to consent to something like this.
0: That's awful.
1: She'd been so brutally beaten that the authorities couldn't even determine the exact cause of death. It was one of the most violent cases that Australia has ever seen. When Nicole was discovered, police did get a break in the case because there was still some forensic evidence on her body. In addition to finding DNA evidence that pointed to Dennis, investigators also found DNA from four other men. So this did narrow their manhunt down quite a bit to just this group of men who had all been sexually involved with Nicole in the days prior to her murder.
0: And I want to point something out here, too, just before we go further, because I think that this is important for people to understand. They did find DNA from Dennis and four other men. But one of the things that I'm interested in is because of all the decomposition and because it was difficult to find some DNA, but other DNA, it's my understanding, was more fresh, there are questions in my mind about necrophilia. I can't prove that. I've read a lot on the case. I know you have too. They were never able to prove that, but I know that this was a very confusing part of the case for them. And I really do think that is a great possibility. And so I just wanted to mention that there was some things in the case that they could never prove, that being one of them. And that's really, really horrific and very telling. I mean, he did have her body in the truck of this car for two days. We don't know who visited it. We don't know anything more than that. But it's something to really consider. And it makes this case even more upsetting to me personally. Just awful.
1: Oh, for sure. And then, like you said, most people who commit a crime like this don't want any evidence near them, in their car, anything like that. So the fact that he held on to her for a few days, it does make me wonder. But I feel like my brain is broken at this point. And um, I see death fetish in a lot of places where I don't think the typical person would be thinking that way. But that's definitely an opportunity for a necrophiliac. Oh, for sure. And
0: not only did they find DNA, but investigators also found Dennis's fingerprints at the crime scene. So he wasn't a very smart fetisher. I say this almost every episode, but he did not destroy any kind of evidence that would have had his fingerprints on it. And so this is when they start to really close in on Dennis. They quickly discover that Dennis was estranged from his family. He was unemployed. And in a series of interviews with people that knew Dennis, they all said things like, in the last few years, something happened and he went weird. That was something that someone said. He went weird. Another person said he had really lost his way. Another person said, I didn't understand this path that he was on. And they all sort of described Dennis as this dark, withdrawn, and increasingly violent person. So he had really gone downhill. And that really begs the question, in my mind, what was going on in Dennis's life that was leading him down this dark and violent path? And I think the answer is death fetish. That's my opinion. I think that death fetish got a hold of him and drug him down the path of destruction.
1: Well, I definitely think that when somebody is unemployed and they have a death fetish, like I immediately think of XJ 900 UK. It's like somebody who has too much time on their hands. They're sitting at home. They're obsessed with all these violent sexual films. It's not hard to imagine that. But we also know that he was using drugs. He was using meth. So it's an interesting pairing. I don't think we've had a case yet where the fetisher was struggling with a drug addiction. So I can see both of those things having a profound impact on what
0: someone's loved ones would say about them. I agree. I think that this is where people need to buckle up because it gets even crazier. And I think we also say this, just when you think it can't get any crazier in these cases, It does. And so, after almost two years of investigating and building their case, authorities arrest Dennis for the murder of Nicole. And as he's awaiting trial at the Parkley Correctional Center, he did the unthinkable. He took his own life before he could ever be accountable and stand trial for Nicole's murder. That makes me so mad. It makes him a coward. But before he killed himself, he did something incredibly shocking. He gave a fellow inmate this handwritten list of women and included their phone numbers. And according to this inmate who wants to go by the alias, Ben, he doesn't want to use his real name, Dennis walked up to him out of the blue and handed him this list of names and numbers. And according to Ben, Dennis told him that he could, quote unquote, have these women. And Dennis went on to describe how these women could be easily used and abused and how to use them. Of course, Ben, he's shocked. He's like, I I don't want this list. He turns it in. It's frightening to him. He didn't know if this was a list of women that he could have killed, was going to kill, had raped, hurt in some way. But Ben describes this situation as Dennis really portraying that he had ownership over these women. This begs the question, who were these women? What did Dennis do to them? Were they connected to the dark underworld of death fetish? Were they forced into it? Was there some kind of human trafficking? What was going on? And why did he feel like he needed to give these women to somebody else before he killed himself? This part of the case is really crazy.
1: In true death fetish predator fashion, he's like, I can't let these willing victims go to waste. I better give this list to a man who can really take care of these women. With what I know about the forums, I think that a lot of the predators in these forums, they view a woman like this, a woman who's willing to be abused, raped, tortured, eventually killed. It's like a goldmine when you find a woman who is open to these ideas, at least open enough to meet you in a private location. I'm sure that he felt like that was a very valuable
0: list. Well, it's very intriguing. It's so much so that I really want to dive deeper into that. I'm going to try to find out who those women were and get more information because that might be a great follow-up episode. I mean, there has to be something there I would love to look a little bit further. I think that could be interesting. And who knows what it might reveal about the dangerous world of death fetish.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, were you able to find any information about what the death fetish websites
0: were that Nicole and Dennis were speaking through? A lot of it's been very tight-lipped with investigators. I know there was mention of The website that you've talked about in another episode, FetLife. Other Mm -hmm. than that, there was not a big mention of anything else. I was asking because when
1: I was researching FetLife and um, Vanilla Umbrella, which is a dating app, those were the only ones I could really find information on. But I know that they were saying there was a whole handful of them. And so it does seem like they're just not releasing the information on which sites but we can definitely talk about fet life a little bit. I would call it a hybrid between a dating website and a fetish forum. And the mm-hmm. reason why I say that is because there's a lot of just typical dating or hookup stuff going on there, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay for people to be on that website, meeting up with like-minded individuals, especially if you have a strange kink that you, it's not easy to find somebody that wants to do the same thing you do. That's fine. It's a good spot for people to meet up with. But there are areas of Life that feel like a forum and they can open up discussions. And if you go really deep into Life, there's some threads like there's abduction threads, and there's kidnapping and non-consensual threads there. Most of FetLife is not death fetish, but there's definitely some death fetish content within Fet Life if you go very deep in. It's scary.
0: And on top of that, I've also been
1: communicating
0: via email with someone who's very close to the case and they choose to remain anonymous for their own reasons. But I will say they described some of the websites in a very interesting way, Alicia. They said they were dark, deceiving and deadly. And I thought, Well, that could describe all of the death fetish online communities. There was several that automatically came to mind when they said deadly. I thought of deadly desires, although that didn't exist back in 2018. I think
1: you just came up with a new slogan for deadly desires. Dark, deceiving, and deadly. This is deadly. deadly desires.
0: I think you're right. But I think that that should kind of open the listeners' eyes, so to speak, of what these sites were like. And they were very scary. And as we maybe continue to look at this case, that might be something that we're able to reveal in another episode. We'll just have to see what kind of information we can find out.
1: Yep. There's always more to do. And speaking of more to do, because this is really, I think, the first case that we've covered in Australia, I had to nerd out a little bit and kind of look into what Australia's obscenity laws were. And I know that this particular case doesn't have to do with any of the filming or the producers, but I think it's just good to know what different obscenity laws look like, especially as we're looking to restructure the ones here in the U.S. I find it uh, helpful to see what other countries are doing with those laws. In Australia, the way that they determine if material is obscene or not, they have, it's like a classification system that they use for criteria. And if a film, a game, or some sort of publication doesn't fall into one of the classifications that they have for it, then it's considered to be a refuse classification or an RC. And then that makes it illegal to sell, exhibit, distribute it. So for pornography specifically, if pornography is depicting consenting adults, It still needs to be classified, and it's going to either get an X18 plus classification. Sexually explicit material that's prohibited under the criminal law is child abuse material and other abuse-based material. So under the current film guidelines, a pornographic film would be RC if it depicts violence, even if the violence is unrelated to the sex occurring in the film. So here's a kind of famous one. There is a pornography. It's a parody of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just called Pirates. So this film was initially prohibited in Australia because of the non-sexual fight scenes that are in it. So they've got a pretty tight law there on what can be released or not.
0: Interesting. Yeah, they're very serious about their laws there. I like this. Yeah, that's
1: tops. I think that's amazing.
0: Those Aussies know their business down there. I think I'll be moving to Australia. I love these guidelines. I think they protect people and that's very, very important. It'd be interesting too to kind of understand what that looks like for actually a film producer and for a consumer. I'm assuming that this means that you get in trouble either way for making it or consuming it. I love this. I'm telling you, the Aussies have it right. You guys are great mates. Nobody's making Death Fetish over there, I bet. Well, no, it sounds like they could be in serious trouble for it.
1: Not the place to live if you have a Death Fetish fantasy and you want to make films about it.
0: That's why they're all moving to Oregon. Yes, they are.
1: The way that Australia has created their structure, this would be a good model for us to shoot for in the US.
0: I agree. And I think it would be interesting to invite some lawmakers other people from australia to come on the show and talk about that
1: i'd like to hear from them too about people who are violating this law like how often it still gets violated there
0: i mean what a great model they have some very detailed ideas of what's appropriate inappropriate and what they're not going to allow i think that that's something we should probably put on the list for a future episode but i think for today this is a great place for us to wrap up today's discussion I want to thank everybody for joining us today. We appreciate each and every one of our listeners, and we are so grateful to those who are standing with us in this fight against the death fetish pornography industry. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, we need you guys. We can't do this alone. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And just before we go, we do have a little bit of exciting news to share. Oh, that's right. Drumroll, please. We are heading to CrimeCon
0: in Orlando this September. Oh, so we hope that each of you will make plans to attend. It's September 22nd through the 24th. Come see us on Podcast Row in Orlando. It's going to be an incredibly exciting event. And we cannot wait.
1: We're so excited. LaDonna has been to Crime Con before. She went to Las Vegas Crime Con. I've been to the UK one, of course, but this will be my very first Crime Con. So I'm so, so excited. And also a little bit terrified because I know there's like thousands of people there and I'm like a sweet baby introvert, but I'm gonna have some coffee and I'll be okay.
0: And I'm going to be right there with you. We're going to link arms and we are going to tell these people about the dangerous world of death fetish.
1: For those of you who aren't going to be able to make it to Orlando to see us and to see all the other amazing content creators, you can still keep tuning in every Monday as we continue to dig into these death fetish forums and sadly the related murders. Until next time, stay safe out there everybody please keep being a light for your very own community keep your lights on for exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes head on over to our patreon patreon.com backslash secrets sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode